Salut. Bienvenue au podcast de Tribble Trip. Welcome to the Travel Tribe Podcast. When our guest today, Nathan Resnick, was in high school, his mind was blown as he flew to China to study abroad. The language, the culture, and the sights could not have been any more different. However, that experience not only opened his eyes to the rest of the world, but it also opened up the door to the world of manufacturing, as his host dad would take him to some of the factories that he worked with and paving his way for his future in e-commerce. After learning Mandarin and starting to import some products into the U.S., he eventually went on to starting multiple brands and eventually launching Sourceify, a platform helping companies source products from China. Nate shares tips for those looking to get into e-commerce, including how to get started, mistakes to avoid, his experiences joining startup accelerators, including Y Combinator, tips for help with branding and marketing your products to help you level up, and the time he made the Conor McGregor FU suit in less than 10 days, making thousands of dollars before finally getting sued by the Irishman himself. But don't worry, the story has a happy ending. Enjoy this week's episode of Travel Tribe. We had a chance to meet last year at the 2019 Canton Trade Fair. You invited me up to your headquarters up there on the top floor. Uh, and it was nice to chat. And I was just super excited to have you on the show and share your story about China and uh, how that kind of led to where you are today. Speaking of, uh, before we get started, why don't you give us a little background uh, story on you and some, some information about yourself? Yeah, totally. I mean, my background stems in China. I used to live over there in high school as a foreign exchange student. Went over there and didn't really speak much Mandarin and lived with a host family, didn't speak English. And it was so eye-opening. It was such an incredible experience to you know just have that, that immersion. And so became very fascinated by how factories produce products and started you know importing and selling products online in 2010, you know, just selling Shotskis and who knows what on Amazon and eBay. By the mm -hmm. time I was 19, we were doing, you know, over $100,000 a year and just continued to grow from there. And, and as my, you know, e-commerce ventures grew, a lot of people asked, well, how do I produce products in Asia? And that's really where Sourceify started. You know, that's mm -hmm. where uh, Sourceify, you know, came to fruition of helping people manufacture products in Asia. And, you know, since then we work with, you know, Fortune 1000s, we work with high growth e-commerce brands and, um, you know, work with uh, a lot of, uh, you know, first time entrepreneurs bringing new ideas to life through our, our product sourcing school program. That's fantastic. And before we get into kind of more of the e-commerce uh, experiences and advice you probably have from uh, multiple years of, of being in the business, I kind of was a little bit curious on why China? What fascinated you about China in high school? And can you tell me about how it was to learn Mandarin? Because I studied uh, Mandarin during our global MBA program. And I basically got laughed out of the classroom by our Chinese teacher. So. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a good question. I, I think part of it uh, was my older sister. She was studying Spanish and I just wanted to be different than her. So my high school uh, back in Maryland, where I grew up, offered Chinese. And so I started studying uh, my freshman year of high school and just became really, you know, excited by the language in terms of how it flows. Um, and the reason I ended up, you know, becoming a foreign exchange student over there was my neighbor did the same program the year before me and our parents were chatting and, you know, uh, they thought it'd be really good for me. And, and it was, you know, it's probably been the most impactful year of my life so far. Yeah. I mean, it kind of kind of paved the future for you. Uh, 
depending uh, where you're at now. And I remember, if I remember correctly, was your host father worked in a, a factory and would take you around? Yeah, he did uh, a lot of work with factories. He didn't work in a factory, but, you know, he had a lot of trade relationships and had friends. And so, you know, that and just going to all the local markets there at the time, you know, for those that have been to China, you know, the silk market, pearl market, all of that, and just seeing so many products and being curious of, wow, I wonder how these products are made Mm -hmm. um, and asking the shopkeepers and, you know, then getting them to take us to uh, a lot of the factories that, that produce those products. And I want to take it back because uh, I know a lot of people are kind of always interested in, in starting their own business or starting their own e-commerce, but they just don't know where to start. So let's just go back to that time when you were getting Shotskis and uh, importing products for the first time. Were there any fears that you had to overcome? What were what was your mindset during that time? Can you kind of walk us through? Because it's it's always good to remind remind people that you know you started probably from a small little store. You know, no one knew right. about you back then, and it kind of grew. So I think that's important to to highlight. Can you tell us kind of the process of getting started with your first couple of e-commerce brands? Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, even before that, you know, we used to kind of sell uh, knockoff products on eBay. You know, that was like our main bread and butter in high school. We would uh, get, you know, knockoff polos, knockoff, you know, headphones, all sorts of crap. And, uh, you know, in high school, probably we're making a few thousand dollars online selling products uh, online every month. And, it was funny because we were making some money and just learning so much. And our parents were like, well, isn't that illegal? But, you know, we uh, we quickly realized that to have sustainable growth in e-commerce and really just have a sustainable sustainable business, you have to create your own products. And so um, the first product I created and invented was the first leather watch strap without holes. It worked like a zip tie, like a belt buckle, mm-hmm. um, slid the strap through the buckle and it caught on notches in the strap. And I thought of that just because, you know, the belt buckles that people, you know, wear and, and saw that watch straps have holes in it and went through the process of, of inventing it. I mean, it was uh, a pretty crazy process because I'd never filed a patent. I had never, you know, developed any CAD, any computer aided drawings. Um, and I just dove really deep in the outsourcing world. You know, I think that was when uh, Upwork was still called Elance. And so I was going through people on Elance and just trying to figure out who's legit, who's not, you know, I think our first uh, engineer was in Ukraine, maybe, or somewhere in Eastern Europe. And, you know, he made our CADs and we sent it to a factory that I had found and kind of known through a mutual friend. And um, we started uh, producing it and it it did well, you know, we launched on Kickstarter and that became a six figure e-commerce business. Wow, that's amazing. And were there any kind of self-doubts that you had along the route while you were kind of getting started with this or just kind of head down and you just, I'm going to get through it? Uh, you know, I uh, I really enjoyed it. I was working at the time. This was, I think, the summer after my freshman year of college, I want to say. Yeah, it was, it was summer after freshman year of college. I was working a summer internship. It was funny. I signed up. I was with this company called iBlack. They produce like um, athletic iBlack strips. Mm-hmm. And I thought my internship would be, oh, going to all these sporting events, you know, really going to all these baseball games and stuff. Uh, it was a nine to five internship. And I was cold calling retailers across the country Yikes. from nine to five making, you know, I don't know, 50 to 100 calls a day. Like it was a pretty brutal internship. Uh, I learned a lot, have a lot of, you know, respect for for that company, but, you know, realize like, look, if, you know, this founder and CEO can, can start this company and grow it into a seven figure business, why can't I? And so that's really where I started spending my nights just talking to different factories and suppliers overseas, talking to different engineers in Europe through, through Elance. So I don't think I was that, 
I wasn't necessarily scared. I don't think that's how I would say it. I was excited by the unknown. I, I didn't think there was that much of like a downside. And I had read that book um, that I always recommend to, you know, people starting out the four hour work week by Tim Ferriss. You know, I think most people have heard of it now, but it's just so, to me, it makes it so realistic of how easy it can be to start a business. You know, they talk a lot about lifestyle and, 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 uh, automation and optimization, but it just makes it so easy to uh, realize how to start a business. You know, you're like, okay, well, I'm selling this product. Here's my my profit margin. Here's how I can test Google Ads. And so it was just it, it, that book helped me realize, like, okay, it's not that hard to start a business. I mean, I remember after we had our first sample, I was in my college's uh, business school, like in the you know, lobby, whatever. I'm hanging out with a buddy. And I'm like, this is when I was scared because I had to file a corporation for this company. Mm -hmm. You know, I was going to go launch on Kickstarter. And, you know, I had read up somewhere where you should file a company before you launch on Kickstarter to separate the liability from you personally in case something happens with the project or whatnot. So I'm in the, the you know, business school. I'm like talking to my buddy. I'm like, dude, I'm super scared to file this corporation. You know, like, what does this mean? Like, are my taxes going to get fucked up? You know, what's mm -hmm. going to happen? Um, and I just Googled like company formation and I had heard Delaware was a good state cause they have good taxes, I guess for corporations. And so I just went online and found a website called Harvard business services. I mean, honestly, I've now filed probably like close to a dozen different, uh, LLCs or corporations through them. It's just super easy to do. And yeah, I just, you know, did it online as a sophomore, and uh, my buddy was basically like, do it. Like, what do you have to lose? And I was like, I guess you're right. I don't really have anything to lose. So I just did it and uh, went from there. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I think that's one of the the, the safe routes is if you have some kind of full-time job already and you're doing it on the side. I mean, then it's just like you have nothing really to lose by trying. I mean, if things don't work out, you at least learned a lot during the whole experience. Um, so after your your first watch bracelet uh sorry the watch strap what what was the next uh what were the some of the other companies or why did you decide to move on to next products totally yeah i mean you know we were growing a, a, you know quite a bit um it was all organic back then i didn't know anything about paid ads and you know i don't even think facebook advertising was really but anyway we we're doing a bunch of organic shit you know set, sending stuff to people that had cool followings and whatnot and this is when we could send products to like really cool photographers and they'd come back with some like sick content and i was like wow like i was actually just talking to one of the videographers we used to work with and he had done this like epic video shoot for our watches and now he like shoots videos for like famous famous like uh artists like his music videos get like 100 million views it's like unreal and like five years ago he was shooting like videos for me <laughs> and my watches uh, so it's cool to see how people grow over time and what they're up to uh shout out drew kirch and uh his his success is, is amazing but yeah i mean over time you know i just wanted to get into more products and do more so we launched uh a brand called Cork Supply Co. where we took like natural cork from Portugal and sent it to our factories in Asia and did like uh, cork hats, cork bags, stuff like that. I, I kind of didn't take that brand to where I think it could go, but it's actually pretty big in Japan right now. If you're there, mm. we like sold the distribution rights to a distributor in Japan who runs it there and they're in a bunch of retailers in Japan. And then I became involved with projects like Original Grain or like Sell Watches. And we basically had a crew in Guangzhou, China that would just crank out products and put them on Kickstarter and uh, see what happened, you know? Yeah, that was going to be my next question. I was kind of curious about your 
developmental process to kind of test demand for products. Can you walk us through how you come up first with the inspiration for a new product and how you actually test for the the demand? Yeah, I mean, there's different ways to do it, right? I think sometimes you look at something that someone's done with an existing product and then apply that to another product. Like that's definitely what you see a lot of crowdfunding campaigns around. A lot of times right now in the e-commerce world, especially on Amazon, people are reading, you know, negative reviews or reading reviews that aren't good on products and just using those reviews to make it, the product even better. And, and so that's kind of been our my, my, my process. I think traveling a lot has helped as well. You know, if I'm in a country and see something cool, like I, I think the reason I saw the the, the cork was in uh, Portugal. I was over there and it was just really a uh, prominent material that was used there. Stuff like that, you know, I think just opening your eyes to the world and, and also seeing, you know, nowadays, I think in the e-commerce world, people always look at trends, which is good and bad, but branding is, is so crucial online right now that, uh, you know, having a good brand that connects with a niche audience, I think is, is really a key. Yeah. Speaking of branding and marketing, what, what are kind of some, some of your experiences? I know you work with a lot of different uh, e-commerce brands and uh, any kind of advice that you're finding has been really uh, helpful in terms of helping brands grow their brand. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it depends what stage you're at. I would say if you're just, you know, starting out, find a niche that you can really target and dive deep into. A lot of people say, oh, well, I'm selling watches. Everyone wears a watch. My watch can be bought by anyone. Well, at the end of the day, that's not how you want to think about it at all. You want to really mm -hmm. dive deep into a specific segment of the market. So like, I remember there was a jeans brand that came out that was like, we are jeans that crossfitters wear because we're stretchy and functional and that's why people love wearing our jeans and that's a lot more important in today's world rather than just kind of a shotgun approach and then you know i would say as you grow i think a lot of brands right now are doing like special collaborations with celebrities or influencers where they launch a exclusive line with a celebrity and you know are able to drive a lot more engagement and traffic and um, just sales through that through that collaboration. I was just kind of curious on. So it seems like you started kind of with the watch making. You know, you said around hundred thousand. How do you? How did you kind of accelerate and start becoming kind of a bigger player in e-commerce? What was, was there? Any kind of I don't know, like little hacks or things or anything that kind of ended up making you level up. You know, I think at the end of the day, it was it was community. I think in e-commerce, as you grow, there's a lot of people that are you know always going to be doing bigger numbers than you. You know, unless you're Jeff Bezos running Amazon, you know, there's be someone that's doing it bigger and better. And uh, I think it's just inspiration. You know, being around people that are continuing to push the ball forward. You know, you might think you're doing a lot, doing a few million dollars online. Well. You know, your buddy up the street might be doing 15 and you're like, oh, shit, you know, how do I get to that level? Um, and then I think also it comes from, you know, just just what what you want. I think in today's world, I think there's, um, you know, some backlash with e-commerce coaches that are kind of selling the dream. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think you can definitely achieve your dream through e-commerce. But I think that um, some ways that e-commerce as a business are is marketed is a bit you know kind of somewhat sleazy in some ways just the way that that people are marketing it you know e-commerce is not a get rich quick scheme you know it mm -hmm. takes a lot of time and effort and um a lot of resources to to grow a brand uh, and especially a sustainable one you know i think there's been a big shift in the market from just drop shipping to now building your own business and people are seeing larger exits in the e-commerce world which makes them realize okay i should actually you know, build my own products and launch my own brand rather than uh, just drop ship, you know, whatever products there are. 
Yeah, exactly. That's one thing. Yeah, I was discussing that was as well. I mean, anyone can drop shit, right? And so it's like you're not really building that much of a brand behind uh, behind that. So I definitely know it takes takes time for that. And another kind of quick question is like, what would advice would you give someone who's kind of feeling frustrated about wanting to start something but not knowing how or kind of how to take action on on inspirations or projects? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I I would say if they're like scared to, to start. My key advice is just write down what's the worst that can happen. You know, most of the time, the worst that happens is you end back, you know, in your job that you're already working or, or wh- wherever you were uh, from the get go. So I don't think the risk of starting a business is really that high. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and from there, you realize, OK, well, that's not that bad. You know, the worst that can happen is not that bad. Uh, and then you should have the confidence to move forward. And my approach with any business is always just writing down what you need to accomplish from a grand scheme of things. You know, if you're launching a, a product driven, you know, e-commerce business, well, you've got to design the brand, you've got to put up the site, you've got to source and manufacture the product, you've got to figure out your logistics and 3PL, um, and then you got to figure out how to market your, your product. So those are kind of the high level aspects of getting that that business started. And then from there, it's a matter of, you know, diving deeper and, you know, trying to figure out, well, okay, if I need to launch my website, what platform am I going to host it on? You know, who's going to design the site? Who's going to build the site? Um, all of that. So, you know, as you realize what aspects or, you know, facets go into your business, you can kind of pull different lever- levels and, and achieve, uh, you know, different steps towards towards launching and growing. And speaking of uh, taking steps to kind of move forward and learn things, is there any kind of tips you have for shortening the time of uh, the learning curve and learning how e-commerce works? Yeah, I mean, I think the best way to learn is by doing, you know, that's what I've always said. And so the key is just get started and get going. You know, you aren't going to learn. I mean, you can learn some things listening to different YouTube videos or different, you know, e-commerce experts and whatnot. But at the end of the day, you know, if you really want to learn how to some, to do something, you've got to do it yourself. You know, you can't listen mm-hmm. to someone do it and then, you know, think you know how to do it. That's just not how brains function. So you were kind of setting up some of these brands and tell me a little bit. I mean, uh, you're wearing Sourceify shirt. How did this idea to create Sourceify come to fruition? Yeah, totally. You know, after college, like many people, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. You know, I had some success in the e-commerce world. You know, I had a, had a little capital and um basically uh, did this really cool program called uh, Birthright Excel. It's like an extension of Birthright mm-hmm. and it enables people to do a full-time internship in Tel Aviv and become a, a part of a really you know, strong knit, uh, leadership community. And so I ended up becoming part of this startup accelerator there and had the idea for Sourceify there, you know, started kind of teetering with it, um, but was still in that travel stage of my life where I wanted to see the world, you know, I had I had lived in, in China and I had been in Asia quite a bit, but I'd never been in, you know, Europe or the Middle East. Um, and so I, I didn't run with the idea when I was in this startup, uh, you know, accelerator. I, I kind of just played around with it and tinkered with it um, and then ended up buying a one way ticket uh, after my three months in Tel Aviv to Greece and did a, a six month Euro trip, which was a lot of fun. And. Uh, I think I timed it, you know, exceptionally well because my buddy in college had started one of those Instagram travel pages and he was like, you know, Nathan, you should start one too. So I started a travel page called Nathan Explores and I went, you know, all across Europe, basically staying at some of the nicest hotels 
uh, for free because I would take photos of their hotel. I would, you know, post about them. And, you know, I also started to write at that time for the Huffington Post and the Next Web and some of these, you know, larger media outlets. And so I could write about and include some of these hotels in the media outlet. And this was before all the travel kind of Instagram <laughs> uh, people yeah. came, came to fruition and, and realized how, how you know, cool this could be. Um, and it was it was amazing. I mean, I stayed at, you know, villas in Venice, Italy, where I had you know a five bedroom uh, canal house to myself with this incredible rooftop balcony. And, uh, you know, sometimes I'd sit there and just be like, you know, what is this? Like, this is crazy. You know, like I, it was unbelievable. But when you travel for that long after six months, you know, I was going to a new city every every, you know, three to five days and I got tired. You know, I was like, this is cool. You know, it looks nice. But number one, I'm not really making much money. I mean, I was doing some writing on the side, but mm -hmm. I wasn't making you know much money. Um, and then number two, I just was tired, you know, going to a new city every three to five days. Like that's a lot of travel for six months. And I also was like partying and, and drinking way too much because that's how you, you know, meet people when you're traveling. Ended up going back home. Um back to DC and my mom's like, all right, well, you got to get a job now, you know, <laughs> real life. Uh, and so I applied for a few jobs. I got one. It's actually funny because I got a job after at a company called uh, Flexport, which is like a big freight forwarder that we work with now. And uh, it's now, you know, one of our partners at Sourceify. But, you know, I told my, my parents, I was like, look, I got this idea for this company in the back of my head. I think I'm going to move back out to San Diego and, and run with it. And so that's what I did. I moved back out and, uh, just started, you know, sourcifying my living room, staying up late and sourcing uh, products for, for anyone that would pay us. Sounds like you were a little bit ahead of your time with, uh, with the travel Instagram, getting free hotels, which seems like everyone's trying to do nowadays. Yeah, I kind of wonder too what it would have been like if I stayed down that route because, you know, some of these pages and like influencers now are doing really well, you know, I mean, you hear of, uh, you know, some of these, these uh, TikTokers right now are doing really well and whatnot. You know, it's cool to see. I mean, I think nowadays uh, community, and, community and commerce, you know, go hand in hand. And so I think that's why these influencers are so important. But yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be, you know, here today if I was still, uh, you know, a travel influencer. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Was there anything from that six month journey that kind of changed your perspective or any kind of enlightenment moments while you were on this uh, kind of six months of kind of getting lost in Europe? Yeah, you know, I was primarily solo traveling, like I just kind of went city by city. And, and a lot of people were like, Oh, wow, like, you know, wouldn't they get lonely? And at the end of the day, like, <laughs> I never felt like I was alone, you know, it was so easy to meet people either at different, you know, uh, hikes or tourist sites or hostels, you know, all over bars. And like, you just kind of realize like, wow, like, the world is more similar than different. You know, a lot of people, mm -hmm. especially in today's world with what's going on, you know, with, with, with uh, racism and the different movements across the world, you know, thinking that people are so different. But I mean, I tell you, I, I've traveled all across Europe and Asia and people are way more similar than they are different. And, you know, I think the key takeaway that I had from traveling is if you're able to find like a common ground or a common, you know, thing that, you like with that other person like we both like you know soccer or we both mm -hmm. like mountain biking or we both like you know girls or whatever it may be like <laughs> you're able to find that common ground you're able to have fun with with almost anyone some people i would travel with and they're like you know super into atving and we go on these like crazy atv rides through like 
you know, islands in Greece or like some people are really into going clubbing. And you're staying out till like, you know, five, six a.m. in Spain. And you're just like, holy, you know, it's yeah. crazy. So for me, I think my biggest takeaway is like with any relationship, it's a matter of like finding something that you both really like to do. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the strong point in that relationship. Yeah, absolutely. I usually when I'm kind of traveling around or in new places, that's one of the first things I want to do is find what we have in common. Uh, whether I've been to your country, I know some of the cities you've been there, or like you said, something very general that we like the same sport. So you come back and you have this idea for Sourceify. How does Y Combinator come into the picture here? Yeah, it's a good question. So, you know, we uh, went back, to, I was back in San Diego, you know, starting in my living room. There was a really cool nonprofit incubator in San Diego called Evo Nexus. And we got into there and it was, it was pretty crazy, honestly, talk about perseverance. But um, the first day that we got in, like our CTO at this time, he actually was on a trip to Europe with his girlfriend and he was going to come in the following week to work with us. And so I got a call from him that morning saying, Hey, I think I'm going to stay in Europe. I don't think I'm going to join, you know, start to and go into Evo Nexus. I was like, Oh shit. Well, like that's my only team member. So you're quitting before we even like really start per se. Uh, so that sucked. And I was like, dang, well, that's a big blower. Cause now I have to go into this, you know, accelerator program, Evo Nexus and tell them that I, uh, that it's just me. <laughs> and then, um, you know, I got a call, uh, an hour later from my dad saying that, you know, my grandma had passed and, um, you know, she, she was, uh, passed peacefully. And, um, I thought to myself, well, do I think she would want me to go down this route? And, and I thought that she would. And so I, you know, walked into to Evo Nexus that morning and they said, you know, Hey, where's, uh, where's your co-founder? And I said, uh, he's, he's not joining the company. And they were said, okay, well, you know, let's see what you can do, you know? So they were very supportive. They helped with growth. And, you know, fortunately I met uh, some incredible founders through Evo Nexus that I'm still good friends with today. So we did that, you know, we grew quite a bit through Evo Nexus, you know, we raised like kind of a, what I'd call like a pre-seed round. And then we were like, all right, you know, I think we should go up and apply to some of these bigger accelerator programs. So we applied to like uh, Y Combinator, 500 Startups, TechCrunch, you know, all the tech uh, accelerators and everyone, you know, I think YC is kind of like the top tier. I think all of them are beneficial to any startup. But yeah, I applied to YC, like solo founder, no technical experience. (laughs) And that's like the complete opposite of what they look for. You know, every founder that goes through YC is both technical and usually has, you know, at least one or two co-founders. So I apply just kind of on a whim and uh, get a call for the interview. Their interview process is crazy because like you put an application and then they say, they send an email like, hey, we want to interview you on this date. So, you know, you fly up, they pay for your flights, which is nice fly up and it's like a 10 minute interview it's like a deep dive and i remember i uh i walk into the interview and i don't get nervous that much you know but uh i walk in the interview and the first thing the first dude i meet in this interview is sam altman like the president of uh or i think he was like the ce the head of the head of y combinator everyone knows sam altman and he goes up and like, hi, I'm Sam. And I was like, holy shit, it's fucking Sam Altman that's going to be interviewing me. And uh, Tim and like three other YC partners. And like, it's just like such a deep dive so quick. And I think the key, especially when, you know, when you're fundraising for startups or just trying to get into an accelerator program is number one, proving that you understand how this company is going to be a billion dollar business. 
And number two, really explaining them, explaining to them why you're the person to achieve that. Um, and so if you're able to have conviction and able to, you know, showcase to them why both those are, are true, then, you know, a lot of times they're going to fund you. And so I thought the interview went like so badly. Like I remember calling my buddy, like Will, like dude, I fucked that up. You know, like I got so nervous so quick because it was fucking, you know, Sam. <laughs> you know, they called me back. I remember I was at the gym. I was with uh, this girl I was seeing at the time in, in SF, and um, I was at the gym. Like get this call from this random number, random number. I'm like, hello. <laughs> He's like, oh, it's uh, Y Combinator. You know, we want to invite you into YC, and I was like, holy shit, like. So I remember I went in the yoga studio. There's like some, you know, girls and people stretching in there. And I called my buddy Will. I was like, holy fuck, you wouldn't believe what you just called. Like, we're in, we're in. And uh, yeah, it was nuts. I mean, we went in in winter of 2018. And, you know, we had a team of uh, about five then. And we like originally everyone's supposed to move up to San Francisco or like the Bay Area for YC. And I think I don't even know if anyone else has done this really. But I think to this date, I'm like the only person that didn't even move up there. I would just get on a plane like every week for like the Tuesday meeting. And, you know, we had like Evo Nexus in like our little office in San Diego. So I just, you know, didn't see the point of being up there full time. And it was it was a great experience. I mean, they, the network is amazing. The access to capital is incredible. The talent there is is top notch. I mean, uh, I always recommend startups to, to apply to YC just because mm -hmm. it's such a, you know, benefit to, to startups yeah and was there anything in your application that stood out there was there a reason why sam decided to call you over to <laughs> interview yeah. over there yeah i mean it was probably two stories come to mind number one is uh is uh, how i spent five dollars to get on shark tank like kind of growth hack the application process mm -hmm. and the other one was um you know kind of our fuck you suit story where we uh growth hacked a bunch of attention by basically copying a, a suit that Conor McGregor wore to a press conference that he had with Floyd Mayweather that had like pinstripes saying like, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. And yeah, we can dive into that story if you want. It was, it was yeah, I want to actually talk about that story because I read that uh, your blog on that. And I think it's pretty, pretty funny. So yeah. what was what was the what was the inspiration behind uh, this this whole? Yeah. Suit? I mean, basically at the time, you know, we were a small company and, you know, just thinking out of the box, like everyone saw that press conference, everyone saw that suit and like it was all over the media. I was like, holy shit, this thing is epic. <laughs> so that night we just like bought fuckyousuits.com. We hit up one of our factories we're like, hey, we need to sample this ASAP. We got samples and like it was crazy how fast they did. It. I was actually so impressed. Um, we got samples of this suit in like five days put up the full e-commerce site, everything uh, in under a week and then blasted it up to the internet. And, and at the time we were just trying to prove like, okay, Sourceify can manufacture products faster and more effectively than anyone else in the world. And mm -hmm. that, you know, proved that out for us. And so we were on like Bro Bible, Hypebeast, like everywhere. I mean, it was crazy. Like we got more attention leads that day than like freaking, like, I don't even know when, like, I think that was the mo most viral day we had at Sourceify. Um, probably most viral week actually. And it was nuts. I mean, like everyone was like, holy shit, like sales were going through the roof. I mean, I think we did like 30 or $40,000 just organically mm -hmm. on these suits in like the first week or something. And then of course, like we never did it for, for the money per se. We did it just to like gain attention for Sourceify. Mm -hmm. Um, so then like Conor McGregor's team saw it and like we had used some of his like 
face and shit and like our marketing and they sent a cease and desist so we had to take it down but it was it was epic i mean um you're lucky was, he didn't come over and kick your ass yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's true too yeah but it was so fun i mean it just goes to show like a lot of times with marketing you got to think outside the box especially in the b2b world like so many people do like boring ass shit and it's like dude like no one wants to be like marketing is always about the people and in B2B, sometimes pe- people think, oh, well, it's business to business. Like, I got to be more, you know, whatever you want to call it, more tame. And I'm always like, you know, professional. Yeah. Yeah. I'm always like, fuck that. Like, there's people that are buying this shit behind the business anyway. Like, let's, you know, build a relationship with them and see who they are and see what they like. That, that's, a, that's a great story. And just from uh, inspiration to the time that you were able to kind of get this sold, how long what was the time frame for the, the suits? It's like, under seven days it was really quick wow that's insane yeah. that's, that's yeah. a great story so uh what was was the reason behind the the viral did you do anything special to make it so viral or just kind of well, people on the internet were like how how can i get these suits and we were like you know hey fuck you suits.com you know we got you yeah. uh and then as soon as media outlets picked it up and knew where they could send people to buy it it just like blew up you know like, I think we were on like the top page of Reddit too or something. Like it was crazy. That's super cool. Uh, and speaking kind of a social media and, and different platforms, where are you kind of spending the most of your time marketing your Sourceify services or your brand? Yeah, you know, I think um, marketing wise, you know, we've been on, we've done a lot on LinkedIn. We've done, uh, we've got our own podcast called Product Sourcing Stories. You know, we do, we used to do a lot of events and trade shows when, you know, the world was more open and we could do that. Um, and those were fun, you know, like I always went into a trade show thinking, because there's some trade shows where you have to like sponsor and whatnot to speak and all this stuff. And I'm saying, look, like I want our content to be so good that people want to hear me speak. Mm-hmm. And that was my approach. So like sometimes I'd go to a trade show and buy a ticket the first year and just check it out, feel it out. And then over time, I'd build a name up and people would be like, oh, shit, you know, we want Nathan to come speak because, you know, he's uh, engaging and keeps it real and shares, you know, uh, good information. So I think that's the key. You know, a lot of times you have these executives that go speak and it, it gets boring, you know, mm-hmm. so they want something that can bring uh, excitement and, and really share uh, actionable information. Going back to kind of why Combinator, just to kind of uh, finish up that. Well, can you tell me a little bit what was the experience like? What was the kind of typical day to day like, and what did you learn from Y Combinator? Yeah, I mean, it was it was a lot of work. It's like a it's a three month program, and it's just you're spinning the full three months. It's mm-hmm. like every week you're like sending updates, what's growing, what's not working. Like the one takeaway is, is just do more of what's working. You know, that's the key right there is like, if you see something working and, and you have to continuously test to improve what's working, but like at the end of the day, like it's a matter of growing and just continuing to push the ball forward. So it was a lot, a lot of work. The partners and, and the community there is really supportive of each other. And cause everyone's trying to you know, build a startup and grow. It was awesome. I mean, it's it's definitely a lot of work. I mean, I remember like after, at the end of the YC, they do like a demo day where you like, you know, have uh, like, I think it was two minutes during our batch, like present your startup. And after demo day, 
you know, all the top investors there, Sequoia and Jason, all this. And they're all great funds. I mean, it's mm -hmm. an amazing ecosystem. But I remember like, because I was flying back and forth, like one of the days I had like eight, like we we ended up raising, uh, and, like we, we were like one of the top like hyped up companies, you know, in, in our batch, which was awesome. It made fundraising, you know, very, very efficient and effective. But I mean, I remember sometimes going through SF, having like eight, 10 meetings in a day with VCs and every single meeting, you have to bring that energy. You have to bring that excitement because if you aren't excited by your business and what you're doing, the investor won't be like, well, why the fuck do I care if, you, if you know, this founder doesn't care? And so that was such a key. And so I remember like sometimes like flying back. I remember I was on a plane like specifically one time I was like flying back and like, I swear I was like asleep, but like my eyes were open and like I woke up and the dude next to me was like, what is going on with this guy? Like what the, he thought I was probably on some drugs or who knows what. But I was just like sleep deprived almost from, you know, using that much energy going around San Francisco, pitching these investors to, uh, to fund Sourceify and, you know, we had success in fundraising, which was awesome. And at the end of the day, you know, I think there's a bit of a, a misconception in the startup world today where fundraising is so celebrated mm -hmm. and it is good to celebrate, you know, raising capital. But at the end of the day, the end goal of a company is to provide value to the world and have an exit for your investors. And so the fundraising aspect, I think, is over celebrated. I think that, you know, really people should should celebrate uh you know outcomes more and just because you raise capital doesn't mean you're going to be a success like there's absolutely no correlation between raising a lot of money and having success mm -hmm. and i think that became even more apparent with softbank putting in so much money to startups that uh, a lot of times were were folding or have folded so it, it's just an interesting world in the startup ecosystem right now with the amount of capital that's available. Mm -hmm. So uh, going into Sourceify, once you kind of got started, I had a chance to visit your office. You have some lovely people there. How, how are you building teams and how are you choosing like uh, people to work for you? Yeah, that's that's the hardest. I mean, uh, hiring and growing a team is the hardest thing uh, in, in a company. And I think right now we're very fortunate to have strong leaders, you know, some of them that you met, met in China. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and I think when it comes to leadership, I think think in growing a team, I think it's about finding the right people. You know, we always are all, all have a very kind of like free culture at Sourceify where I'm always, I'm always like, look, work when you want, where you want. As long as we're achieving what we set out to accomplish, then everyone's happy. And if we aren't, you know, obviously we have to take a step back and see what we can do to improve that. Um, and so that's really, you know, been our mindset and, and goals. And since day one, I mean, I kind of realized earlier on that I wasn't like, a, like, I don't like micromanaging like I actually hate micromanaging so I usually tell people like hey here's a, a goal like how do you think we should achieve it and people say I'm very trusting in, in our team you know I try to let them do what they think is best and you know run with it and I know kind of over the last year you've kind of gotten some attention on news media because of uh, your knowledge and expertise in sourcing. You, one thing you talked about was diversifying supply chains, you know, kind of not just staying in China, moving on to Vietnam and Thailand and Philippines. How's that looking now? Yeah, you know, it's still really important. You know, we have people in uh, all across Asia, China, Vietnam, India, Pakistan, uh, and then as well as Mexico. So diversification right now is always top of mind when it comes to a supply chain. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's, it's so interesting, you know, running production across different countries. There definitely are different things to look out for in each country and different things to look out for with each supplier. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of moving parts there. Mm -hmm. And any like pros and cons, for example, someone moving away from China and let's say going to Vietnam or Thailand? 
Yeah, I mean, I would say capabilities like, you know, China, you can basically produce almost any product you want, whereas in, you know, Thailand or Vietnam, you know, their production base just isn't as strong as it is in other countries. So uh, a lot of times the raw materials are going to be coming from China still anyway, like in Mexico, a lot of the raw materials still come from Asia. It's longer lead times because they have to import that product into Mexico and then, um, you know, put it together. So it's, it's a different balance. You, know, you just have to be aware of all the moving parts that go into it. And how are you able to kind of work with different like cultures? Do you have any kind of cultural misunderstandings or issues at work ever when you're kind of going to these new countries? I mean, I, you know, I just know how they say La Wai and, and you know, all that stuff in every country now, you know, like uh, nah, it's, it's funny. I mean, it's always cool to be able to travel and see and interact with people from different countries. Like probably the most remote place I've been for anyone that's uh, Filipino that's tuning in. I was in this like very, I think it was Southern tip city called Zambonga, Zambonga. And before I was flying there, I was like looking it up uh, and it was on the do not travel list of like the EU and the US government. I was like, oh shit, like what's going on? And it's like, because there is a lot of terrorism there. Like there's a lot of like uh, kidnappings and some bombings and stuff, but we had like some very good uh, factory partners there and they have like a free economic zone there. So I was like, you know, fuck it. I'm going to go check this out. Like the factory kept inviting me and I was like, all right, you know, I gotta, gotta go check it out. Why not? And I was in Guangzhou. I fly over. I like miss my connecting flight in Manila, like Terminal One. You got to take like a taxi to like Terminal Three. On I was like, what the fuck? Like it was it was crazy. I almost got lost just going through Manila to the other terminal. I'm in the airport. Had missed my flight. And there's only one other you know uh, white dude in this airport. One other foreigner in this airport. And of course, he's Australian. You know, Australians are freaking all over the world. <laughs> and uh, this, I'm this guy's like, hey, mate, like, where are you going? I'm like, uh, Zambonga. He's like, what the fuck? Like, don't go there, bro. Like, what? you should go to Cebu or some shit, you know? And uh, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, uh, I don't know. I got to go for work and stuff. He's like, all right, well, if you know people, okay. But I would never go there. Like, okay. So I fly down and it's like, you know, me and uh, every you know, man or woman has like, you know, a headdress on and stuff on the airplane. I'm like, holy shit. I'm like, what am I getting myself into? I don't know. You know, everyone's like looking at me like, wow, is this like foreigner on the right plane here? You know? (laughs) And, uh, I land, there's like barely a terminal at this, you know, little city. I'm like thinking like, oh shit, like where am I? I don't have service or anything, you know? And like, I hear this dude just like screaming like Nathan, Nathan. (laughs) It's like, uh, Ron who like runs the factory. And, uh, he takes me, you know, he's got like a driver. I'm like, Oh shit. Is this the start of like a kidnapping? How does this work? You know? And, uh, it turns out like I stayed at the mayor's house there, which was incredible. They were so happy to have me because, you know, 99.9% of the people in this city are amazing people, Mm -hmm. great people. It's just that point one that fucks it up for, the rest of people in terms of the violence that they bring to the city. So it was crazy. I mean, I remember in China in 2010, where I would like, as a foreigner, you know, you'd stick out. Mm-hmm. But here, it was like, even more crazy, or like, literally, like, I would just sometimes get out of the car, people would be like, what, like, the whole city would stop. They'd be like, what in the world is this guy doing out here, you know? And it was really cool. Like, they pitched us on like, opening up our own factory there and doing all this stuff there. And, um, you know, we still support them and are still connected to them. But uh, we didn't end up, you know, fully investing into our own our own factory there. And so I just kind of while we're wrapping things up, they I just had, wanted- they had the warnings in Zimbabwe, and I was like, "Fuck it, you know, terrorists can't kill me, right?" No. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I've I've done that a couple of times. I went to the World Cup in Brazil as well, and they were saying like, "Don't go before you go," and it's always like, "Hey, it's not so bad." Usually, most of the time. 
we're here still. But yeah, while we're wrapping things up, I just wanted to kind of get some uh, some of your tips and, and advice from your experience with e-commerce brands. And uh, one of the questions I had was, what, what's kind of setting e-commerce brands apart? What do you kind of see the big players doing that the smaller players aren't doing? Uh, I think it kind of ties into the influencers. A lot of big brands now, they're using influencer pages to run ads through. So like mm-hmm. they might you know, do a partnership with an influencer and use their page to run ads. And I think that works even better. And uh, what about the biggest mistakes that people are doing? Uh, in general or, mm-hmm. or in e-commerce? In, for e-commerce, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Going to Zimbongo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, in general for e-commerce, I think people don't have the margins they need to grow. It's something that's super simple. But if you look at some of the highest growing e-commerce brands, they have 80% margins. You know, they're producing a product for $20 that they're selling for $100. And people might think that's a lot, but if you're spending $50 to acquire a customer, you've got operational overhead, you've got logistics overhead, like you've got a lot of costs that add up to your net cost in a product. And so people a lot of times see and think, you know, 40% is going to cut it and, and it's not, you're, you're not going to be able to grow your brand sustainably at that margin. Yeah. And so uh, also you're running a Sourceify product sourcing school over there at Sourceify. What what are kind of some of the value uh, points that you guys offer for people participating in this? Yeah, we teach people how to go from an idea to a product in as little as 90 days. So we walk them through a step-by-step process that we've used hundreds of times to bring new products to life. I mean, it's been awesome. You know, we have anywhere from like high school students to retirees to single mothers manufacturing their own products and starting their own businesses. The commitment for that is, you know, are they working on it every week? Are they having meetings with you every day? Or how does that kind of look like a week on a week to week basis? Yeah. So it's an online program. They're then set up with a sourcing coach. And then I host weekly town halls with our community. So it's really cool. We've got like over a thousand people in it now that, uh, you know, are manufacturing all sorts of products. And, you know, it's accountability as well. People are you know, trying to push the ball forward together. Accountability and masterminds have become such a popular thing in the last couple of years. So that's, that's definitely cool that you guys are doing that and helping people out uh, get started. And the last thing I wanted to ask you is what kind of keeps you motivated every day? Do you, you know, how do you get through uh, burnout or procrastination? Yeah, I mean, I, I always ask myself before I do, you know, anything really is number one, will it be fun? And number two, am I going to regret not doing this? Um, and so, you know, if the answer is yes to, to those two questions, I usually do it. If it's no, then, uh, you know, sometimes I, I think about it more and sometimes I don't do it, you know. So I think you've got to have kind of key questions that guide you in life. And right now, those are my, my two ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it's a matter of taking breaks, you know, like here in Salt Lake. I mean, I went on two hikes yesterday. I hiked during lunch for like an hour. And uh, after work, I went on a hike. I mean, it's a matter of like, I think kind of breaking up your day. Like no one can work like 12 hours a day. It's crazy. Like you just aren't going to have the the mental ability to do that, at least not productively. Yeah. And just out of curiosity, what does your day look like? Uh, yeah. I mean, I usually get up at like 6.30 or 7. First thing I do in the morning, which, you know, maybe maybe shouldn't do. I don't know. I check email. I just go through email like first thing, which isn't that bad. It doesn't take me that long. Maybe, you know, 30 minutes or so. And then I'll try to do the most important, you know, goal or task that I had that had that had set that day. Um, and then I'll usually, you know, pour a glass of coffee and uh, then kind of start going through things slower. And, and then, you know, kind of start taking some calls typically around uh, 11. And then I'll go work out during lunch usually. So that's either a hike or going to the gym. 
and then in the afternoon I'll have uh, lunch and you know dial back into work. Um, that's either you know doing managerial stuff or actual work or, or, or calls, and then you know typically take a break around like six or six thirty and have a hike or dinner or who knows what. Um, and then at night I always do some work, usually an hour before I go to bed, especially because mm-hmm. you know our business is is so reliant in Asia that it's important that I touch base with that team before I go to sleep. Yeah. Cool, man. Well, thanks for sharing that uh, and sharing some of the tips and advice. You know, so many years of experience, it's, it's really nice to kind of get that as well uh, for our viewers. Uh, and we usually end our show with the Travel Tribe toss-up. So we just ask three questions, uh, just fun questions. So let us know. Uh, first thing that comes to mind. So the first question I want to ask you uh, are, what are the three of the coolest e-commerce brands you are most excited about right now? That's a really good one. I would say... Cuts clothing, bites toothpaste, and coolest coffee table. Oh, okay. I have to check those out. Cool. Number two, what is the most embarrassing moment or cultural misunderstanding you've had abroad? I mean, this is probably just a, it's a quick, dumb one, but you know, whatever, we'll go for it. Uh, I remember when I was in Europe, like, you know, they, the train doors close and a lot of times you can reopen them, but we didn't know that. Yeah. So my buddy got on the train and the door closed and we thought the train was about to take off. So I started like knocking on the window, like trying to get in. Like everyone on the train is like looking like, what are these guys doing? And uh, then this guy just comes up and presses the button and the door opens. <laughs> we're just standing there like, oh shit. Like, okay, well, that's how you open a door on a train in Europe. <laughs> that's funny. What country was that in? It must have been in Italy. All right, cool. And the last one, uh, what experience made your heart sink? Any disasters, uh, especially when starting e-commerce? Yeah, you know, we've had stupid shit happen all the time. You know, everything from having thousands of socks mislabeled in terms of them being the wrong size and having to hire people to come in and relabel them. You know, it's just like stupid stuff like that where you're like, wow, like, you know, we need to really, you know, dot our I's and cross our T's here to make sure everything that we're doing is uh, right. Because otherwise it just adds a lot more time and, uh, inefficiencies to our process. So, um, we've learned a lot in terms of, you know, quality control in terms of making sure that products are coming off the production line as they should be rather than finding out, you know, when you open the container at the warehouse here. Cool. Well, thank you so much for answering those questions. Um, and just for anyone who's interested in getting some more information, uh, from you, I know you always offer great content. Where could they find uh, some more information? Yeah, just, you know, sourceify.com or I'm pretty active on like Twitter and LinkedIn, uh, Nathan Resnick. And yeah, just reach out if you guys have any manufacturing questions or e-commerce questions. Cool. Well, thanks, Nate, so much for joining us today. I really enjoyed the chat. Um, Hopefully other people did as well. Uh, Best of luck to sourceify and best of luck to you during these challenging times. Hopefully you guys are able to adapt and kind of become stronger uh, through the times and we'll keep in touch. Definitely. Thank you. All right. Take care. Well, that does it for this week's episode of Travel Tribe Podcast. Join us each Tuesday as we release new episodes with great adventures. Until then, remember, the most dangerous thing you can do in life is to play it safe. Stay adventurous.